Okay. All right. Good morning. Okay. Sorry, folks. We didn't have our opening music there. Good morning. This is uh, the Skinny here. I'm Mitch Perry for, on Friday 13th, uh, senior reporter for the Florida Phoenix, joined in studio with both of my colleagues this week. For the first time we're all together in a while here, author and freelance journalist Ben Montgomery and Ray Roa, the editor-in-chief with Creative Loafing Newspaper. Uh, hi, guys. Let's get your mics on there. Hey, Mitch. How are you? Good to be back. It is good to be back. back I feel like it's studio. been a month and a half for me. Yeah. <laughs> well, not that long, Ray. But uh, first of all, I want to say a big thank you to all the listeners who are tuning in right now. Thank you for yes. listening. But also those of you who contributed last week. Of course, we were having the fundraising drive, which the station does three weeks out of the year. The How did we do, Mitch? Yes, we did. Uh, we'll get to that total. So our goal was $1,200 last uh, last week, and we made $1,507.79. So. Uh, that is really huge, and especially because as Ray and I were here uh, back in the summer, or last time we had a fundraise, uh, we didn't do nearly as good as that. So really thanks very much from the bottom of our hearts for those of you who contributed. And again, so again, three weeks out of the year, the other 49 weeks, we're doing what we're doing today, which is giving you straight uh, news and information. So again, thank you so much for that. Now, uh, I want to talk about the guests we're going to have on today. You know, we're not doing, of course, as people know, listen to Skinny, since we've been doing this since late January, we mostly concentrate on issues with Tallahassee and the Tampa Bay area. Obviously, the biggest story in the world right now is going on in the Middle East. Uh, You know, I'm sure all you've been following it all week long. We're not really addressing it today in terms of our guests. Uh, Maybe in future shows we'll do that. But I wanted to mention that because I want to not be clueless about the fact that that's going on right now and, you know, really care about that. So we'll see that going along. And maybe if we have time later, if anybody wants to talk about that, we can certainly do that. But what we do have, and it isn't because it's such a stressful time, we're going to go a little lighter, especially in the second half of the program, with Tampa Bay Times humor writer Stephanie Hayes, who is also in studio. Hey, Stephanie, we'll get to you in a few minutes here. Thank you so much, though. She is in studio with us. uh, So looking forward to that. So we're going to now talk about what's going to go on here next weekend in the Tampa Bay area. There is going to be an all-day summit looking at criminal justice issues here in Florida and the Tampa Bay area, and nationally for that matter. And Ray, are you involved? Are you doing anything with I that? am going to be uh, – I'm going to moderate a panel there. Yeah, yeah me Don too. Me I'm going to be – interviewing Julianne Holt, the Hillsborough County Public Defender, at super early, like 8 o'clock next Saturday morning, 8.15. But anyway, uh, we're going to talk about that. We have somebody, one of the guests who's going to be there because there's not only folks uh, from – around the state and the Bay Area, but also nationally. And one of the folks who will be appearing will be Alexandra Bailey. She's a campaign stra- senior campaign strategist with the Sentencing Project, a leading voice for criminal legal reform. And Alexandra, I believe, is with us right now. Alexandra, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for inviting me. Hey, great to have you here with us, and thank you so much for joining us. So you're going to be on a panel, Alexandra, talking about second-look legislation. Now, i got to admit that I, I, you know, one of the things I do cover a lot at the Florida Phoenix is on these criminal justice issues, but I'm not too familiar with second-look legislation, and I don't think many of our listeners are for that matter as well. So what, what are we talking about here? Uh, believe me, I would love nothing more than to enlighten them. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Second Look is a style of legislation that is taking off around the country from sort of the bluest of the blue to the reddest of the red states for the simple reason that pretty much every Department of Corrections across the country is encountering similar problems. Um, Gigantic prison populations. The United States leads the world in carceral populations. It's larger than China and Russia's. Um, And those prison populations are aging. They are sick. They are costly. 
And many of the people are no longer a threat to society. So what do we do? How do we safely decarcerate? And so second look legislation allows a person after a long term of confinement to apply to their sentencing judge or whoever is currently occupying that bench to um, review the time that they've spent in prison. Is this person a threat to society? Have they taken full responsibility? Have they paid their debt? Are they sick? Are they mentally ill? Should they be there? Um, or do we now feel differently about the circumstances of those offenses? This is particularly true with criminalized survivors of domestic violence. And so if the judge agrees, then you get to go before the parole board and the parole board also has to agree that you are worthy of release. If you manage to meet that very high bar, that very high metric, then you have an opportunity for release. So it is a cross-governmental safe way to decarcerate that has already been operationalized in several forms throughout the United States, has very low recidivism rates and is proving to be very successful policy. Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. And you, I know that you've been going, I think I saw that uh, the sentencing project testified in the Massachusetts legislature about this. Yes, indeed we did. Massachusetts has a second look bill. (laughs) Right. How many, how many states, uh, do we have states who have actually passed this uh, right now? Uh, Yes. So this has been passed under federal jurisdiction. um, And uh, the District of Columbia has passed it. Um, New York State has passed a law that is, um, they do not call it second look, but it is designed to identify um, a major problem that New York State had, which was the criminalization of survivors of domestic violence who were serving these incredible prison sentences essentially for saving their own lives. So they passed um, a second look style resentencing, but it is referred to Domestic Violence Survivor Justice Act. Um, and there are a multitude of uh, styles of this that have been passed around the country because obviously every state has its own issues. Yeah. <laughs> Shall indeed. we say? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Again, we're speaking with Alexandra Bailey. She's with the Sentencing Project. So you're going to be on a panel next Saturday here in Tampa discussing this. And I was looking back. Um, I know Alina Garcia, I believe they're going to have up there a Miami Dade House Republican is uh yes. right she's going to apparently be sponsoring a version i saw that jeff brandis who uh many of our listeners know we actually had on the program here a few months ago uh who was a leading champion of criminal justice reform in the legislature he's no longer there he actually tried to do something with this back in 2020 which brings up an issue a very sensitive issue with many folks who fight for criminal justice reform i'm sure what you'll hear about people will be talking about all next saturday in tampa which is the fact that um, and maybe you could talk about this overall, because uh, I know this is your, your realm here, Alexandra, about uh, the criminal justice reform movement overall. Now, things maybe changed the last couple of years post-George Floyd and all that, but we have seen, I know I've followed this in conservative states, in te- states like Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana. There's been, you know, serious efforts over the last decade on, on criminal justice reform, things that we have not seen here in the state of Florida uh, you know, and that's pre-Ron DeSantis. So many can, can't say it's like it's, it's all about him. Um, but but there is a bill, right? That there is going to be one here filed in, in Florida this coming session. Yes, uh, the Sentencing Project and many Florida-based organizations, we've been very, very honored to work with her office on crafting second-look legislation that 
uh, very specifically addresses Florida's concerns. So, for example, um, when I was talking about domestic violence and the incarceration of women, since 1980, your um, between 1980 and 2017, the rate of women incarcerated um, in Florida has increased by 733 percent. Now, that's probably a number that the average Floridian doesn't necessarily think about. These things are not obvious, but um, Eliana Garcia um, is thinking about these things and is very eager to allow her state to do the right thing. And um, she's been very thoughtful in these efforts. And I, I mean, our organization most certainly applauds her. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so um, could I you could you put a face on this for us, Alexandra? Uh, uh, Representative Eliana Garcia um, is a Republican representative. No, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, on 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 somebody who who deserves a second look. Uh, is there a poster child oh, for oh. this sort of? Oh Lord, how much? How much? How long is this show? <laughs> Let us know some of the some of the details. I mean, give us some real uh, details. Somebody out there um, who's. Oh, okay. Um, well, I'm going to share some examples that I have permission to share. There are some um, examples that I have, but I have not received permission sure. from the survivors of those crimes to share. So I'm just going to share ones that um, people that I'm personal friends with. So one of my very good friends, uh, her name is Susan. Um, she left a husband who uh, she found sexually assaulting their two and a half year old daughter. Um, and she did what any mother would do. She took her children. She left. Um, sometime later, she was remarried, happily remarried, um, expecting another child. And when this former spouse found that out, he, uh, he, tr he tracked her down. He jumped her. He sexually assaulted her and stabbed her in her pregnant stomach. She was 36 weeks pregnant. Mm. Um, she, in the struggle, managed to get the knife off him and stab him. She woke up in the hospital. Her baby was no longer in her stomach, and she was chained to the hospital bed. Oh she God. was convicted of murder, sentenced to a life without possibility of parole sentence. I know the child that survived this attack, and she has never been able to hold outside of prison walls. Oh my now, God. right now in Florida, as in many places, I think if you were to ask the average American if they felt that that was a miscarriage of justice, they would say absolutely. The problem is, is that there are limitations on appeals. Once they're done, done. So unless the governor will give you clemency, which has a very low grant rate across the country, but most particularly in Florida, you're done. So look allows us to go back and wholesale look at the decisions we've made and say, do we still believe that that is the best decision? It is not a get out of jail free card by any stretch of the imagination, but it is one of the few avenues that we can pass that will allow somebody like this a second chance, or mm. I, I, I would actually classify this particular case as our wrongdoing, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, wow, yeah. thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Again, you're speaking with Alexandra Bailey with the Sentencing Project, uh, leading voice for criminal legal reform. And on that panel, I, I think Representative Garcia actually will be up here, right, uh, next week in Tampa talking about this as well. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, so that, and again, we'll tell people after after our interview here where people get more information about the uh, about this criminal justice uh, panel next week or in the whole uh, day event, actually, uh, a little later in the program here. Uh, but uh, let me ask you if I could. I, I was looking at other things of what the Sentencing Project does here. 
uh, and, and I don't know if you were first on talking about this, but I know one of the things you're working on, this, your organization, is on repealing the ban on food stamps for people with drug convi- convictions. Uh, can you talk about that at all? Oh, well, yes, absolutely. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> so um, one of America's favorite laws is what I'm sure you all from it's called three strike laws. Right. So you don't have to have serious convictions to be subject to three strike laws. So I'll actually give you an example from a friend of mine who's a public defender. Um, So a person was on their third theft. Their first theft was of batteries. Their second theft was of food for a total of about $35 of um, missing, of, of taken items, if you will. On the third offense, now a mandatory minimum kicks in. Okay, so this person was somebody who was starved. Now they're going to go to prison. Now they're going to come back, and they're in the same position but worse because they have a carceral record. And that tends to become more of a blight on community um, without them having access to that. Now that's like a very, very obvious example, but when people's hierarchy of needs are not met, we know that there is an increase in dangerousness. There is an increase in antisocial behavior, something that any person of any political stripe that is interested in public safety um, and increasing public safety should agree that uh, taking people down to that, to that lowest hierarchy of needs and putting them in that desperation makes for a more dangerous society, not a less dangerous society. And at the Sentencing Project, we are most concerned with creating a fair and just system that does not jeopardize public safety. And that is why we took a very strong stance on that. Right, right, absolutely. Can you, you know, you've been doing this, I think, in this this space for a while now. Um, Can you address the issue in terms of where, you know, I know you work in different states and you said, you, you know, red and blue states when it comes to the idea of the Second Look Act. But I, I'm, I'm wondering uh, the the um, appetite for criminal justice reform, has that changed at all in your opinion nationally in the last couple of years post-pandemic, post-George Floyd protests? I think that the criminal justice world has always been a world of massive push-pull. There are um, intensified moments like the one that you pointed out around the murder of George Floyd, but mass incarceration is at 50 years for when we when most researchers identify that America really turned towards policies that brought us to our current state. So we're 50 years in on this fight overall as a movement. And um, I think what is becoming clear to a lot of states is that they wrote checks that they can't cash. They've sent so many people to prison and the infrastructure, the staffing, the medical care, the costs were something that they really didn't think out in terms of a policy. Right now I'm incarcerating somebody who's 21. Now they're 94. I've paid millions and a 94 year old person with cancer can't go commit another crime. So I think what what we're looking at right now, particularly in the criminal justice space, is that now that 22-year-old where it seemed like such a good idea is now 94. And I think that's where the movement's at. It's time to pay the piper and folks are getting stuck. 
then they go turn to the law and they realize there's no release valve. Right. And that's what we're trying to add into the system, as well as allowing to retroactively go back and add fairness, as I would see it to the system, like in Susan's case. Absolutely. Again, if you're just tuning in right now, you're listening to The Skinny here on WMNF, 1122 in the morning here. We're speaking with Alexandra Bailey from The Sentencing Project. She'll be in town next weekend as part of a criminal justice summit taking place in Tampa. Um, are you familiar, Alexandra, with the First Step Act that uh, Donald Trump signed into law back in 2018, I think it was? Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, one of its recipients works for the Sentencing Project uh, and is one of my favorite people on the planet. Oh, okay. Well, good, because, I mean, I want to bring this up before we let you go, because I, I haven't heard much about it in the campaign trail much at all, but Ron, uh, Ron DeSantis, back before I think he maybe even officially uh, entered in the race for president, as we and we've seen this since he's been in the campaign, running to Donald Trump's right on so many issues, and one of them has been on the First Step Act, which Donald Trump uh, did sign into law in 2018, which allows federal inmates to significantly reduce their actual time custody time. Um, I think when we read this here, the rule allows many federal pr- prisoners to earn credits that would both reduce their sentences by up to one year and allow them to earn an unlimited amount of credits towards home confinement. Uh, this program primarily benefits uh, nonviolent offenders in federal prison camps and low security institutions. Um, and I think there's been some, you know, some challenging news in terms of trying to implement this, but DeSantis uh, went out, you know, earlier this year, and we wrote a big story about in the Phoenix about how uh, he was basically saying this, the law is, is, you know, terrible and that there's been people have gotten out who've done, you know, recidivist, have done crimes, what have you. Uh, and a lot of the evidence does not indicate that whatsoever. Um, no. Yeah. Uh, the, ter- the terrible thing about working for a research organization is that uh, you're going to have a hard time getting a lot of this stuff by us. Um, recidivism for people who have served long sentences is actually the lowest of that you will see across releases of any part of the carceral population. So point blank, end of, that is true. <laughs> right. But – We are looking at a political reality where we are trying to go back to these old tropes um, that have proved successful in getting votes before. Okay, so the tough on crime thing, you know, it 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 got folks votes. It kept Democrats, Republicans, you know, working and keeping their offices. And now we're to the point where actually those policies are just costing their taxpayers money. And for Floridians, you all are. Third in the country, I believe, right behind Texas and California for the largest prison population overall. And so when it comes to, I mean, if you take the entirety of the human element out of this, which of course you shouldn't, but if you do, from a fiscal standpoint, we've gotten to a point where these policies no longer make sense. So you have to say something untrue because the truth of the matter is you can decarcerate safely and without recidivism. And actually the people serving the longest terms should be at the front of that line. Yeah, absolutely. And again, just on the same topic, you know, we've heard, I saw DeSantis actually last week in Tampa, he was here and he's really is pushing the tough on crime, talking about, and you see this, obviously Fox News really features a lot of this. They, they look at San Francisco, my hometown, Portland, you know, uh, some where, where there's been some, uh, a lot of theft, a lot of petty theft, what have you, uh, retail theft. And, you know, that America is out of control. That's the perception that you see in some of that. 
And I'll tell you, Ron DeSantis is really, is really running on that kind of thing right now. So anyway, we'll leave it there with you, Alexandra Bailey. She is, again, the senior campaign strategist with the Sentencing Project, and she'll be at the Tampa Bay Criminal Justice Summit, which is taking place on next Friday and Saturday, October 20th and 21st. And to learn more about that, you can go to horizoncommunities.org. That's horizoncommunities.org for all the information about that. Alexandra Bailey, looking forward to seeing you next weekend. Thank you so much for joining us here on The Skinny on WMNF. Oh, believe me, it's my pleasure. And uh, if you want to check out our recidivism report so you know just how much people are lying, go to thesentencingproject.org. All right. Thank you so much, Alexander Bailey. Again, all right. And again, we want to tell people again, Ray's going to be there. What, do you know what time your panel is? Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm at 8.15. I, I do know. Mine's definitely I, I'm not that early. I'm the alarm right now for uh, Julianne Holt. Um, and also, okay, so we're going to pivot here right now. By the way, a little promotion here because I want to do it for my friend Flea. Uh, for MNF because, you know, we always made our goal financially and we're all good and all that. But um, another thing that we didn't really get out uh, not last week is that tomorrow night at Skipper's Smokehouse, uh, the station. Skipper's. Yes. They're going to be, we're going to have a, a Tom B- Petty, uh, uh, what, what do they call them? The it's a tribute show. Tribute. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So yes. a bunch of local bands are going to come together and then play the songs of one of the greatest Floridians to ever walk the swamp. What bands, Ray, do you know? Um, I do not know off the top of my head, although yeah, I but, think we um, have a... Uh, it's always so cool. I, I'm thinking about going out there. So the doors are at 5, music begins at 6, and uh, so it's going to be a great time. Uh, so again, think about that if you're not doing anything tomorrow night. Okay. And so, is that a fundraiser for m and Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see you all out there. So cool. Okay, so we're going to pivot now. I want to make sure I can see her. Hi, there's Stephanie Hayes. So uh, Stephanie Hayes has been with the Tampa Bay Times for 20 years. Damn. Mm-hmm. Started in the Carrollwood Bureau. <laughs> Where okay, so now we have, we have Ben Montgomery, of course, who Longtime uh, staffer, of course, as well with the St. Petersburg Times. Uh, and so we'll have some uh, cross pollination about the, the good old days. And I'll chime in with that as well, only because I've known so many of you folks who've been through the Times through the t- time I've been here. Uh, now, she is a nationally syndicated humor columnist. Prior to being a columnist, uh, Stephanie was a reporter covering local governments, higher education, nightlife fashion, performing arts, and obituaries, which, of course, led to her novel, Obituary, published back in 2013. Uh, which someone told me sold really, really well. It did, yeah. About 100,000 copies? No, no, 10,000. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, that's, that's still I don't know. Yeah. I've always heard a successful book is uh, about 10,000 copies. So yeah. What was your best-selling book, Ben? Uh, yeah, Grandma Gatewood's Walk. Yeah. It's, All right. Over that. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. Okay, well, Stephanie, thank you so much again for joining us. I've been wanting to have you on here. I've been really enjoying some of your most recent columns. Uh, so first I want to ask you, um, would you call yourself a humorist? Because that is a title, I think, uh, they call Mark Twain that. Uh, and then and doing it in newspapers. <laughs> would, you, would you compare yourself to Mark Twain? First question. <laughs> well, how about like Art Buckwald and uh, Irma Bombeck were the people I always think about when I think of humors in newspapers. Mm-hmm. I I guess. I mean, most of the time what I write has some element of humor into it. Mitch has, I wish you could see, he has to crane his neck around the computers because I'm very wee and he, I disappear beneath <laughs> you know, the monitors. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I say that I write a humor column, but it kind of dabbles into the serious every now and then. Uh, it's, it's, it's about culture, life, current events, and sort of my take on it. Um, I, you can call me a humorist if you want. I think it sort of spans a few different genres. And, uh, you know, one person I really looked up to when I was younger was Dave Barry, who I'm going to be in conversation with on November, um, ooh, 
11th at the Times Festival of Reading. He has hey. a new book out. Yeah, so um, he's always been kind of an icon for me and uh, somebody that I like to emulate. Um, so, yeah, I like to write in that vein, uh, but also be serious when I have to. When did you make the transition? When did you become, because we said you've been there for two decades now, mm-hmm. and when did that happen? What, the, the editors had this conversation. Were you always funny? I woke like, up one morning and I had bat wings. Well, well, the, the, did, did, was this your idea? Would the editor come to you? I mean, how did this happen to get this column like this? Yeah, um, so I was actually an editor when I, uh, before I made the pivot. I had been editing for about five years and I was on our masthead and running our life and culture, arts and entertainment department and hadn't really written anything for about five years. And um, and I should say edited the great, very good Farm to, farm to Fable yes. package, right? Yes. Uh, Laura Riley? Yes, uh, I did. Finalist for the Pulitzer? For the Pulitzer yeah. and James, James Beard, yeah. Beard, too. Yep. Um, so I was having a lot of fun as an editor, and I really liked editing. I, I, I still do. I still like that leading a team sort of mentality and working with other people's copy. But I just sort of missed um, writing, and there was an opportunity to bring a new voice into the mix. And I went to my boss and said, hey, what if I did that? But, like, I didn't want to be your typical columnist that... Um, that you might expect or not too traditional anyway. Yeah. Um, I wanted license to be a little funny, a little weird, um, to be a little less rooted in policy and more into life and how we navigate the world. And so uh, we said, let's give it a try. And that was, uh, that was December 2019. And my boss said, we'll let you start your funny, wacky column in March 2020, <laughs> <laughs> which some of you may remember was not a great... Yeah, a little thing called the coronavirus (laughs) happened, which is, our world's never been the same since. So literally my last day as an editor, the newsroom was shutting down and everyone was leaving and um, we had those first cases in Florida and I was supposed to be on vacation, but we canceled our trip because of everything. And I was sitting at home with basically no job because I was between the two and I was supposed to write funny, funny, haha, as this terrifying, terrifying pandemic was unfolding. And I just remember walking around my neighborhood crying, like, what have I done? <laughs> oh, no. And then I just sat down and I wrote uh, a, a piece that was basically like, wow, everything sucks. Um, I don't really know what to say, but let's just try to figure it out together. And that's really been the tone of the the column ever since. And I actually think in retrospect, it was a good time for um, a column like mine to come along because yeah. people really did need a little bit of a release valve. Absolutely. Again, but you have been yeah. funny for a very long time. Oh, thanks. And I'm just, thanks, Ben. I'm just going to refer to the record here, clicking <laughs> back to, I think, 2013. Oh, boy. Um, these are Stephanie's words. Oh, no. Picture a pair of jeans, <laughs> powder blue. The rise stretches higher and higher until the belly button is but a distant memory. The ankles taper to the shape of sugar cones. They are too short, and the socks show. <laughs> The back pockets, well, they're big enough to warm a Clydesdale on a winter's morn. Dun, dun, dun. Mom jeans. <laughs> wow. I, I don't remember. That's like a fugue state. I don't remember writing that. Although I do remember that I was writing about President Obama's jeans. It came after Obama threw out the first pitch the first at a pitch. ball game. And, uh, and as you note, he, <laughs> you saw ankle without him even breaking stride. So he was just walking ankle. across. And you know, the funny thing is those are the jeans that are in style right now. He was a trailblazer for fashion and I, we didn't know it at the time. Yeah. Wow. All yeah. right. Hey, well, I'm going to make sure our listeners, if they want to get on the conversation, uh, the phone number is 813-239-9663. can also uh, email us at uh, w, uh, dj at wnf.org. Um, 
So, okay, so um, you've been writing some, I, I've actually found, like you say, you know, it's not always pure humor because I have some, some of your stories um, come out or your essays. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say is like you said you started this in March of 2020, coronavirus. That's also for those of us who are Timesologists, if you will, the day that the Times, of the moment, the Times stopped publishing seven days a week. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, let's be honest, I think they were waiting for that time. And that was like, oh, this. Well, we're just doing this now for a few months. I remember talking to my carrier, the guy still coming to my house and, on Sundays, at least, and, and saying, you know, this is going to be for a few months. That has happened. But I think the, the two days that publish your columns out those days, right? Yeah, still it still does. I publish most weeks on Wednesday and Sunday, yeah. but they go online kind of whenever they're ready. Sure. Or sometimes I'll just write an extra column online that never sees print. I also have a newsletter that comes out every Monday uh, via email. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Thank you for knowing how to pronounce it because sometimes people look at it and they're like, Stephaniately. Like, come on, come on, come on. Work now, now what's in that? If we, we were so it's, that. Bon- it's usually like a bonus column that doesn't appear anywhere other than the um, okay. the. The newsletter and then I'll round up everything else I wrote for the week and kind of talk about if there was reporting like behind the scenes stuff or sometimes I'll just here's what I'm reading or here's a funny cat video you know. Yeah. She put a picture of Rick Astley in there just one time. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well one of the things I saw that again I think is kind of a lifestyle kind of story that I think is really uh, is in tune with what we live with was this uh, I think you, you saw it was a Washington Post story about the new phone etiquette mm-hmm. and you wrote about that because Look, maybe I'm one of these old-fashioned people, because, but as a reporter, you know, you I call people every day. I, you have to, right? I mean, you can email them, say, let's set up a phone call or, or text or whatever. But I'm doing the phone call, and sometimes without even texting somebody. But apparently that's, like, not appropriate now. Like, what's <laughs> going on in our world Goodness. now where you— uh, You got to text, uh, can call. I call you? You yeah. got to never oh. call first. You have to text that I'm going to call, yeah. which I, you know, I wrote— I kind of support. I've just never been a phone girl. I wrote in that column that a boy called me in high school and he said, hey, I just got home from baseball and I was like, okay. And then it was just kind of awkward. <laughs> and I said, you know, well, bye. And I didn't know that you're just supposed to talk into this box. It never came naturally to me for whatever reason. But uh, the thing that, the trivia that you guys can take to the bar this weekend that I learned writing this uh, was that the word hello was kind of a slang. It was in Invented by Thomas Edison. Well, it wasn't invented by him, but people would say hello when they were shocked. Like someone would burst through the door and you go, hello. That was the, the word. But he suggested it as a phone greeting. And Alexander Graham Bell, his you know worst enemy, said, no, we should say ahoy. And hello went out. So <laughs> that's why we say hello now colloquially. Oh. I kind of wish it was ahoy, to be honest, especially in Tampa. But Good information. Yeah, I'm start using that. Yeah. I know. Yeah. So... Um, you do write occasionally about politics. I mean, mm-hmm. how can you not? The state has become, uh, as we all know, uh, well, Florida has always been caught in the culture for many years. Florida man, right, has been a thing. Uh, our, pol- you know, just our elections, what have you, the source of, uh, of well, merriment to some and, you know, despair to others. But, uh, but we, obviously with Governor DeSantis, we've got a lot of things that are really pushing on the edges of our culture and many things. Um, what, uh, Including book bans, mm-hmm. which yeah. Stephanie has taken head on. Yeah, that's sort of been my the issue that I care most about writing about this year. I've probably written about it maybe 10 or so times yeah. and yeah. continue to. Um, that it, it really hit personally for me when Pinellas County 
took the bluest eye off the shelves. Um, Tony Morrison novel? Yes. My family um, grew up next door to Toni Morrison in, in um, sorry, Lorraine, Ohio. And so oh, uh, wow. we have a personal connection to her. And that, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and that book's really important to me. So I'm a pretty even-keeled person, actually. Like, I kind of just roll my eyes at everyone and everything but that one made me you know rise up and out of my body when that happened and so I what I ended up doing is um going to the bookstore and buying a bunch of copies of The Bluest Eye and then I put them in little free libraries all over town and then I wrote about that and my family's connection and that sort of set off my interest in the in the area of book banning I'm a Pinellas County school public schools uh, product I have lived in this area since I was 11 so I went to middle school and high school here I went to uh, St. Pete College and USF. So I'm, it's public education on public schools and literacy and um, access to materials for everybody is something that's really, really important to me. And uh, this this issue was huge. I mean, Florida is, according to PEN America, is leading the way in the country with book bans. I think we have something like 40% of all book bans in this state alone. We've outpaced Texas by a lot. <laughs> and, and inevitably, it's things that include LGBTQ references and um, people of color. And, you know, there's statistics on this. And it's happening at the local level. And it's it's infiltrating the the school districts in a really weird way because a lot of these educators, my mom was a teacher, I'm very passionate about educators. Um, they're trying, the, the teachers, the media specialists, they're trying to do the right things and even up to the superintendent level, but they're being targeted and they're being, you know, tossed out of their jobs and there's far no, more nefarious candidates waiting in the wings. And so they have this very hard line to walk where they're trying to do what the state says, which changes every day right. and keep their jobs and also, you know, keep the books on the shelves and it's really tough but um, I just think it's really important to that we don't slip into kind of normalizing this issue and saying no it's just parents you know deciding that their kids shouldn't listen to a, a type of music or whatever because it's not really well, the same well, thing. Let me ask you this because as, as you know and I'm sure because Ron DeSantis gets asked this on the campaign trail all the time mm -hmm. and you know, he, he says it's a hoax right he says mm -hmm. that in fact he had a big press conference in Tampa uh, I don't know, back in March, something like that, where literally it said uh, the, the ban, uh, book ban hoax. Mm -hmm. And his, this is what, I've, I've said this, I think, um, when we've talked about this, this topic on the program, because um, I was at the press conference when he did that, and there were a few titles that are explicit, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, that reference maybe masturbation and some other things like that. And so it was, I know it, it was a channel, News Channel 8, who was doing, they they do like on their on their website, like a live, you know, report, because it was a news conference with DeSantis. And they did, like, they stopped the feed, right? Because it was really, they were putting stuff up there on this big screen. It was actually, you know, they, they warned people. They showed this movie, it was like a five-minute video of like, uh, you know, in the audience, they told people, you know, this is going to be a little explicit here. So he always uses that, um, that incident. He says, oh, well, you know, you think, you know, these books or whatever, like they were showing that the, the station had to stop the, the fund programming. And he, I guess the point of what he says is that when you can, and other people say this when they defend this, that it's not a book ban, is that you can still get this. Like, it's not like we've completely, you know, stopped that, but it kind of essentially is. Well, yeah, I always say it's kind of like calling a sofa a couch, you know, call it whatever you want. You're taking the <laughs> materials away. Right. So, you know, they don't like to use the word ban because it is associated with, you know, Fahrenheit and stuff like that. Right. But, right. you know, unless we have firefighters bursting into our house and ripping books out of our hands, they're not going to be happy. Um, and, you know, when they when they present the explicit language, it's, it's always done wildly out of context. It's always done without literary merit or with discussion of which age group is able to access this material. 
real. They make it seem as though young children are able to see things like you described, and that is typically not the case. And it also um, takes the conversation into a, a place where one parent has the ability to decide on what everybody's child should be able to see. And they're actually, this is a tactic. So Moms for Liberty and these other groups are using, they call it, they literally call it potty language. They, they're they very well organized. I wish anyone was well organized as them, but they, yeah. they get together, they say, okay, you all, before school board meetings, you all have your passages. Now read the filthiest, worst parts of it. And the goal is for the school boards to cut them off because that triggers a law that says if we cut if you're not able to say it in a school board meeting it can't be presented in the schools and so it's like it's a very shrewd tactic um that that they're doing to to shock and disgust people uh without the benefit of any of the context or discussion of the materials or the intent or the thought process of the media specialist. And it seems like the goal here is to, as you wrote, paint schools as hotbeds of moral corruption. Yeah, and, it, and it's the whole thing is a, an effort, in my opinion, to destabilize the public education system and turn more people towards privatization. And so we have less kids in, in public schools as a result. going on for many years here in Florida, way pre-Ron DeSantis. Again, if you're just tuning in right now, uh, it's 1142 in the morning. You're listening to Skinny here on WMNF. I'm Mitch Perry, along with Ray Roa, Ben Montgomery, and our guest today, Stephanie Hayes from the Tampa Bay Times who is with us for the the rest of the, the hour here. Can uh, I go pick, piggyback off of something you mentioned, Mitch? You know, as Stephanie, you, you went from <clears throat> COVID columns mm -hmm. to now touching politics at a really hot button. Your inbox is probably just as incendiary as anybody else's at the times, which you've alluded to your uh, family. Um, mm -hmm. In your columns, you kind of know you have a family a little bit. Mm -hmm. How much does safety um, for them will come into your mind as you're getting some of this feedback and then how do you like keep that what does that wall look like between like your personal mm -hmm. life and then the people that you care about and then saying what you really want to say in, in the column how, how do you work that yeah I try to I try to um, draw a pretty clear line I I like to write about my family and my personal life I think I, I'm a person a lot of writers don't like first person it makes them want to die but I actually like it <laughs> quite a bit um, life. yeah <laughs> and my husband's a, a former journalist and so he you know and when we got together he kind of understood like if you're with me you might end up in the material <laughs> so um, that's he's cool with it I try to be respectful and not paint him as like a, a an idiot husband like in the laundry commercials you know <laughs> but um, or like Phyllis Diller right yeah yeah <laughs> so he's you know he's game um, I have a stepdaughter who's 12 and her name and picture doesn't go anywhere, you know, and I really try to, the older she gets, try to be careful about what I say about her, her life, you know, and the material. I know like some of her teachers know who I am and, you know, that kind of stuff, um, which I so far seems like it's cool, you know, but yeah. we'll see. Um, I do feel pretty safe. Most of my readers are really, really nice. I get a lot of really, really nice email. And um, if people disagree, they're usually pretty respectful and that's fine with me. I try my best to reply to everybody. Um, if they're just abusive and outright, like, you know, trying to just really insult me or take it to a personal level, I just block and delete. Like, I just don't really have time, you know? So, and I think there, you find that those people are the usual suspects or they move around to different email accounts because I've seen it, you know? And so I just, I just whack them all those guys and um, it's fine. I do get people who, I live in Dunedin, which I talk about all the time in my column um, and that's fine. And several people know where my house is and... Well, by the way, you, there was a big uh, tornado. There you know, was. How, it did you was get affected by that? Yeah, well, we woke up um we woke up in the middle of the night when the alert went off. This is my most recent column and kind of went um well, I don't know. My husband checked the weather and then we went back to bed and then we woke up in a mile away from our house 
the tornado had ripped through a shopping center yes. that we go to all the time. Yes. So I kind of wrote about like, okay, you should probably t- don't be like me. If that go- <laughs> right. if the alert goes off, like go hide in the bathroom, you know, don't be stupid. Um, so that, you know, that kind of crosses into my family life. But I will just say, Ray, the one thing I don't really like is when people um, like tell me that they like went by my house or I had someone um, like say that they liked my column from the street the other day who I didn't know and like that. I'm kind of like, if I'm at home, I would love to not be <laughs> you know, approached, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which happens every now and then. But on the whole, I don't feel I don't feel in danger. I actually feel like there's way bigger fish to fry than what I have to say about these issues. And you know, people who really get into the mud and sling with some of these folks, and I probably don't really enter the the mind of like Ron DeSantis well, very you, much. Well, or you mentioned at all. you get you know, mostly nice emails. Mm-hmm. We got one right now from you, actually, uh, Stephanie. This is from David. He writes, "I love Stephanie's columns. Uh, she's very funny. My 83 year old dad loves." Stephanie's writing. And he asks, have you ever considered trying stand-up comedy? <laughs> uh, I, I do have a secret desire to do stand-up, yeah. but I will never tell anybody about it. If I ever do it, I'm going to go to one of these open mic nights at a brewery and not tell a soul. And So the Bond Brewery open mic is I where you be. Maybe. <laughs> or Dunedin Brewery. I don't know. Or I might go out of town, to be honest with you. <laughs> Well, he also what, what, he also asked if, if, uh, if Carl Heisen is an influence at all. Oh yeah, Carl Heisen's fantastic. I mean, a legend for sure. He, um, you know, I know Carl. Uh, Carl and Dave are great friends, and I think it's funny because Carl is very like anti first person like dorky writing, and that's what Dave does. And so I see like. I, I see myself sort of hitting in the middle uh, of those two, right. you know, um, but everybody has a different approach and they're all, yeah, they're all yeah, yeah. A couple yeah. of, a couple of the funniest writers in the country, uh, for going on quite a while, several decades now, what is it about them? Is it just because Florida provides so much material? I mean, Florida is just inherently funny, you know, um, I definitely think so. I think they're, you know, it's interesting. I would like to ask Dave when I see him next month what it was like to get out of the business when he did. And Carl, too. Um, Carl stayed longer. And they both drop in with columns occasionally. But I do wonder, not that there was never hard stuff, you know, but I do feel like the world now is maybe just a little less funny on the whole than mm-hmm. it was in the past. Um, maybe that's just my point of view. But I, I wonder if sometimes they look at the world now and go, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Some, I know, sometimes right? it's, it's really hard to joke about this stuff. And democracy, mm-hmm. forget about what's going on, like the Middle East right now, yeah. uh, but just in America, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. I guess it's kind of comedy. Look, when you look at the, what's going on in Washington, D.C. today, right, with the fact that we don't have a <laughs> Speaker of the House. <laughs> and, and, and I will just say our, our uh, representative from Pinellas County, Anna Paulina Luna, she the other day said she was for um, Jordan. She's been all over the place. I mean, literally. Sure. I mean, she. I, part of the problem why they can't get the 217 votes is because people are saying they're vote for somebody one day, then they're for somebody the other day, and they don't really give an explanation why. Yeah. And that's happening with uh, our local representative in Pinellas County. Um, again, if you're just tuning in, we, we're with uh, Stephanie Hayes of the Tampa Bay Times. Let me ask you here, and we've got Ben Montgomery here, of course, uh, who was, Ben, how many years were you with the Times? Oh. Uh, nearly 18. Yeah. 18 years, yeah. wow. Okay, so the Times has been an institution, uh, you know, for way back. In fact, I'm reading the, this book about the New York Times, actually. Actually, it just came out a couple weeks ago, uh, and it's about what was it? Hal Raines. I don't know if you remember him, who was an editor of the Times. Who, I guess, in the seventies was with the Tampa Saint Beat Times. You know, so many. You guys know so many legendary reporters. 
well, some maybe I don't know about what in your time when you were there, who went on, but but you know, preceding you guys. But the Times has got such a, a exalted reputation still. As, you know, I know it's a big thing for or it was with Paul Tash to win Pulitzers. Um, but I'd like to get your thoughts about the paper where it is now, because obviously newspaper journalism has changed a lot right now. There's way more, uh, you know, obviously digital. It's what I work for right now. I mean, Ray, you of course have a, a, a you do both, you know, with the, the CL. But the Times itself, because uh, it is such an important thing, uh, thing, an institution uh, for our community. And it's different now. I mean, literally, it is. I, when I go to a different city and I get a paper every day, I'm like, wow, this is kind of nice. I kind of, I obviously miss this. We don't have this. Um, so how, how's it work? I work with the Times these days. So, you know, obviously, you're there mm-hmm. right now. What are your thoughts? I mean, sure. Every, every you know, media institution is different than it was 20 years ago. I'm sure this, this room I'm sitting in is different than it was 20 years ago. You know, um, I think we're all trying to figure it out in real time. And, you know, the if you're not nimble, you fail. You know, if you don't adjust, you fail. If you're not willing to try new things, you fail. And so I think, you know, we're a very, we're a habit product, right? We're someplace people come to every day. They expect to see certain things. I mean, even in my job as a columnist, it's interesting because um, there's not a, a lot of like traditional newspaper columns anymore. And, you know, by definition, a column is in the, we call it the stick. It's that little slice on the side of the newspaper. And it's the place where people know where to go to find you every week. And when you're, um, I am still in print, but when you're online a lot more, it's like trying to define what you do and what the role of like a a neighborhood columnist is as opposed to like an op-ed or an editorial or a reporter it's really really hard you know how do you label things online how do i get my material to people in a in a recurring way that builds the habit and so we start experimenting with things like newsletters which we know we have a lot a lot a lot of people who love our email newsletters that's been really successful for us um both you know something like mine and something like a breaking news or we have a day starter that is like basically the morning paper but it's rounded up but it's really hard because you go out and people just want to go know where's the paper ever you know is it am I ever going to hold the paper again and you know what I say to them is well you know that that physical paper it's very dear to people you know but remember that we we have something like 90 stories a day updated in real time on the website and that's you know and it's stuff that you you can't get in in this piece of paper and so we're still working just as hard if not harder with fewer resources to try to bring you news it's just you know sometimes we need to ask readers to also shift along with the times and that can be really difficult you know and you want to work with them where they are um i think i have different buckets of readers i've got people who read me specifically in print and i know that's where they see me every day i've got people who read me online or they find me through google seo searches stuff like that and, and we can see that. We can see where they're coming from. I've got people who only read my newsletter and they come to me for that. And um, that's their favorite thing. And I don't think there's a ton of overlap in those groups. So it's trying to figure out how to serve a bunch of different audiences with different tastes, different habits, different ways they consume news and entertainment and um you know, doing our best like everybody. Yeah. Ben, one, of our, one of our friends uh, suggested to me that one of the things people might not know about you is you're fiercely competitive. Is that true? Me? Yeah. Um, huh. <laughs> I wonder who said that. <laughs> um, <It's> Josh. <laughs> yeah, Josh. No, no. My husband? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I don't know. I don't feel. Do you fierce. think of yourself like that? No, not no. really. Okay. No, not at all. Yeah. In fact, I'm like I should probably be a little more competitive and try to win some more stuff. I'm always kind of like, well, we'll see what happens. Oh. <laughs> That's nice to be noticed, you know. No, I don't think that I'm fiercely competitive. Um, I think that I care about my job. I think that I want to do a good job at it. I don't think I'm lazy. I think that I am proactive and um, curious, and I have a lot of energy. Do you miss um, reporting? Which you used to do. I do a little reporting still. Okay. Um, it, it's in the mix of the columns. Um, but uh, I I don't know. I really like the wordplay side of things. Um, how, I, many, how many hours of school board meetings did you watch uh, you know, in the I've charade been to of qu- people? Quite yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah, I've sat through them or watched them online. And, um, you know, it's really interesting when you kind of sit through and listen to the 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 times where the public has opportunity to speak because there's a lot of people it kind of kind of is a good reminder that a lot of people really um aren't buying into a lot of this you yeah know? you yeah. kind of alluded to this um earlier when you talked about when you finally got the green light um for the column but I, I remember when Kristen here asked me to speak to the night uh pointer fellow somebody asked me like hey how do I get my ideas past this person in the newsroom who always seems to be like that roadblock and mm-hmm. I don't know if it was the right thing to say but I just wait for them to die oh. you know <laughs> and um but like your long career in journalism you know a young person seeing that would probably want to emulate that and, and columnist is really an aspirational thing right now there are fewer and fewer of you mm-hmm. um what what do you say to like a young person getting into journalism who does feel like when they finally get to that newsroom they're kind of like yeah. moving slow and slow track. Like, how do you survive that and get to the point where you're at now? Well, I would say sometimes it is a slow track. I mean, I've been here 20 years. I started when I was 19. I'm 40 now. Um, so it's not like I had a, I figured out a magic ticket to like, you know, lightning lane to the top. Um, I think I always tell people that I said yes to a lot. I tried a ton of different beats, things I didn't think I wanted. I wrote obituaries for a year and a half, which was not anything that I ever dreamed of doing. I think I was 25 or 26 at the time, vibrant young person <laughs> writing about death. And um, I, you know, but in, when I when I reframed it, it was a chance to do feature writing, which is something I wanted to do. And um, it had a couple other things going for it that I wanted. So I tried it and it, actually it taught me more than I ever thought I would learn, you know? Um, so I think saying yes and sort of um, maybe dispensing your own ego a little bit and, and trying things that you didn't think you wanted to do or that might not sound so glamorous um, are the things that build a really dynamic, interesting journalist or writer or whatever you are, you know. Um, I think finding ways to distinguish yourself, finding mentors within the room around you who can help get you where you want to go, um, you know, being having that like soft influence and trying to, you know, help people out, help out your peers, um, stuff like that is really important. Um, and not just sort of waiting, sitting back and going, why isn't everything I want coming to me? Maybe that's what someone is interpreting as competitive. I don't mm. know. I don't know. So Ben, you uh, left Daily, well, you went back to Axios, of course, uh, a couple years ago, but when you left the Times, what year was that when you left the Tampa Bay Times? 2018. Okay. Uh, and of course you were writing books, so you had another avenue there, uh, but were, was it nice for you to like leave the daily I guess you maybe you, you weren't also just like turning stuff around every day but because you were doing like long features as well um, yeah, but yeah. you know what was the, the hardest thing was leaving the, the newsroom I mean to be honest to leave the people that I saw every day for a long while and I used to sit right across the cubby wall from Lane to Gregory mm. caddy corner to me was Leonora LaPeter both Pulitzer Prize winners to my left was Michael Cruz who's now doing 
phenomenal work on uh, the politics beat of Politico. To leave that, uh, Stephanie was in an office not far away. I could hit her with a rock if I needed to. <laughs> Uh, Thanks to, for not throwing uh, rocks at me. <laughs> to Sean Daly, for heaven's mm-hmm. sake. Sean, a dear friend who I miss uh, greatly. But to leave the camaraderie and the yeah. spirit of that newsroom uh, was a difficult thing. And all, yo, everybody, fa- really everybody faced this that much during, anymore, right? Well, I wonder it's about changed. that. It's yeah. changed. I mean, we're, I think we're hybrid now. Some people come in. Um, I Personally, I work at home about four days a week and I go in one day and um, meet with people and hang out sometimes more um, if, you know, if it calls for it. Um, it depends. It really depends on the person. And I do think we, it, there's, it's ups and downs, you know, cause yeah, maybe we're missing a little bit of that thing you described, that camaraderie. Um, but I think a lot of our, and I can only speak for myself, but I think a lot of people have maybe struck a little better, better work-life balance too, mm-hmm. because we can come and go, we can pick up our kids and go do things and, um, you know, work when, <laughs> uh, when it works better with our lives rather than being chained to a desk from, you know, the old fashioned way of thinking. So I think maybe in that spirit, it's a little bit healthier. I mean, it's, I think, and, and this isn't unique to us. This is every industry in, yeah. the, in the country trying to figure this balance out right now. I know the Phoenix, which of course I work from home cause I'm down here in the, my uh, office in Tallahassee, but they've said, I think um, Monday or Monday and Thursday are the days where you can work from home, but the other three days you got to be in there, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So trying to keep a mix of like having being around your colleagues to generate ideas, you know, bounce mm-hmm. off of people. Also, I was talking to. Uh, uh, well, I shouldn't actually say this at all to a colleague about that. But it, like, you know, again, I, I, it's Wait, different for me because I'm actually home that. every day because, again, I'm based in St. Petersburg where my editor's in Tallahassee. So it's obviously phone conversations every day, and sometimes they're they're quite lengthy, maybe longer than they would be if you were actually in person. You know, you can go, okay, thanks, and you go in the other room. And anyway, it's kind of interesting. But, yeah, this is a societal thing in terms of mm-hmm. post-COVID, uh, in terms of the office situation. I was going to ask, Stephanie, how, how do you find ideas? How do you know something's going to hit? Uh, it depends. Some days it's easier than others, you know, like this week I, the hurricane, or I'm sorry, a tornado hit a mile from my house. So I was like, okay, well, there we go. go. Yeah. Um, you know, and just before that I was kind of wrestling with what to do because I don't really feel like it's my place to weigh in on the crisis in the Middle East and, but it's sort of a vacuum, you know, of news right now. So I'm like, what feels appropriate right now? It also doesn't feel right to write about candy corn, you know? (laughs) So I'm like, I have those sort of struggles all the time of just like tonally what is the right move. Absolutely. Um, so sometimes it's very obvious if there's something going on, um, or, something that I'm going out to do or some experience that I have that is just, oh, I got to write about this. Other times it's a little more searching, seeing what people are talking about, you know, seeing what our readers are interested in. We can now, one of the benefits of digital journalism is we can see what people are reading and how long and what they really want to know more about. So stuff like that. But other days it's just a, um, a torture spiral into the depths of despair, you know, until I come up with something. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, Creators is uh, putting together a book, right? Yeah. So Uh, Creators Syndicate um, syndicates my column and they are releasing a book of, uh, we're calling it essays, but it's the columns and um, they're coming out any day now. I, oh, really? I don't have the date, um, but if you fi- guys follow me on social, What's it called? What's it called? be serious. And there's a p- cute picture of a slumpy manatee on the cover. It's very cute. Ah. Um, but if you guys follow me any any which way, you'll get the info when I have it. Wow. Okay. Looking forward to that. Didn't know that. Thank you, Ren, for bringing that up here. Well, uh, we're best about about out of time here. By the way, so you mentioned getting some you know complimentary emails. We've got another one for you, uh, Stephanie. Uh, this is Bob uh, who writes in. I'm a loyal reader of your work and enjoy all of it. The original TV. TBT had writers with content similar to yours. I appreciate our newspaper. Yes, TBT, that was a thing for a while. 
Um, yeah, he's probably just calling the Tampa Bay Times TBT. No, but remember but, the, 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 oh, the yeah, yeah. I used to work for it. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. one of my stops along the way. I did a debate with um, 20, uh, Evan Buckhorn ran against Greco, and when Greco made this real faux pas, I was able to pick up like Tim Russert and meet the press and pick it up physically and, and you know, accuse uh, Dick Greco of like this and that. There's a big headline of the sheet, so that was really mm-hmm. cool. All You're right. getting played off. You're getting the hook. <laughs> we are, indeed. So you have been listening to WMNF 88.5 FM, the skinny. Sophie Hayes, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank Along you. with Ben Montgomery, Ray Roa, I'm Mitch Perry, Skip Sassy. Uh, Irene's back there as well. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back here same See time next week. week. This is WMNF Tampa.